I'd like to talk about happiness and mindfulness. And I'm sure that after your first day here, some of you are feeling rather ready for a small dose of happiness. It is, I feel no understatement to say that this practice is dedicated to and in the service of happiness. It is easy for us to think of happiness as being a result of our practice, as being one of the fruits of meditation that we harvest through our practice. Sometimes we might feel that if we practice meditation enough, that eventually we're going to arrive at a point in our lives and in ourselves where we are extraordinarily happy. Some people even feel that if they suffer enough, then at some point they're going to arrive at a place where they're not obliged to suffer any longer. Some people feel that suffering is a way of paying our dues for happiness. On one level, it is true to say that happiness and well-being is surely one of the results of meditation practice. Although it might be truer to say that through meditation practice, and the wisdom that emerges from meditation practice, then there comes happiness. It is equally true to say that happiness is actually one of the foundations for deepening in meditation and in understanding. It might even be said that well-being and happiness is even something of a prerequisite for actually deepening in our understanding of ourselves. This might sound very strange to us. We might feel, well, if I was actually really and deeply and profoundly happy in my life, I wouldn't be tempted to meditate. I would have no motivation for coming on a retreat. The quality of happiness or well-being, which is a foundation for deepening in understanding and deepening in meditation, is, I feel, somewhat different than perhaps our more conventional or stereotyped images of what happiness looks like. When I say that happiness and well-being is something of a foundation or even a prerequisite for deepening in meditation, I'm not suggesting that, you know, only people who have finished suffering in their lives should come on retreats, nor suggesting that, you know, the most proper way to come into the meditation room is kind of singing and whistling and, you know, making visible your eagerness to get down on the cushion. The happiness we speak about in practice is different than just elation or a particular mental state which is high or excited. In the beginning of Buddhist teachings, Buddhist discourses on meditation, 
The Buddha would usually suggest by saying that the person, the yogi, should find for themselves a quiet and a secluded spot and set aside their entanglements with the world and establish themselves in mindfulness. What is suggested in this invitation is to cultivate a quality of mindfulness that holds within it the willingness to welcome everything that is present. This is the true foundation of meditation. To be willing to set aside our entanglements with what has already gone by, our regrets and remorse and guilt and history. Have you noticed today how many of your thoughts have been about what has already gone by? The invitation to set aside our entanglement with what has yet to come. Have you noticed today how many of your thoughts are about events or possibilities that may never ever be a reality? Or how many thoughts carry within them or are fueled by an anxiety about something that is apart and separate from this moment? To set aside our entanglements with plans, with goals, with our ideas about the future, and to set aside, too, our entanglement with the present. It means an invitation to set aside our judgments about what is taking place, our comparisons, our obsessions, our dwelling. In this way, mindfulness is actually a vehicle and a powerful tool for simplifying the present moment. It expresses a willingness to open our hearts, ourselves, our minds with a welcome, a welcome embrace of everything that arises in the moment. This is contentment. This is the quality of true contentment. To not be in a place where we feel obliged to struggle and battle and resist what is, or to make conditions about what we are willing to be present with. Being able to set aside those inclinations towards struggle and battle, there does begin to emerge in ourselves and emerge in our practice a true sense of ease of being, a calm abiding, a sense of openness that allows us to befriend ourselves, that allows us to befriend the moment. This quality, this, this experience of ease and calm abiding surely carries within it a flavor, a distinct flavor of happiness. I know when I began in meditation practice, 
I was very much attracted by what I had read and what I had heard about liberation and freedom and the happiness associated with liberation and freedom. It sounded to me like a wonderful idea. I never read a single story where anyone complained about being liberated or bewailed their fate about being free. Instead, all of the stories of liberation were and are indeed stories that are filled with great happiness, great joy, great peace. And this is what magnetizes us. It magnetized me. It was what I was looking for, what I was seeking for, what I felt to be missing. I also felt I'd had enough of suffering, enough of anxiety. And this theme of liberation and happiness is, of course, fundamental to all great spiritual traditions. There is a point to what we are doing here. There is a direction There is a vision and an invitation which is being extended. And it is an invitation to understand what is possible for us and what may not be immediately visible or accessible to us. The words that describe that freedom or liberation differ from one tradition to another. And yet, no matter what words are used in spiritual traditions and spiritual practice, there is an extended invitation which is an expression of confidence. An expression of confidence and faith in each person's, in each one of our capacity to be free, to be awake, and to know great depths of happiness and peace and freedom. This path, in its invitation and in its expression of confidence, is not selective. In the sense, it doesn't say, you know, some people, some of you who are lucky, are going to find happiness, are going to... discover wisdom, are going to deepen, are going to understand what it means to be free if you practice. No, this teaching says that anyone who sincerely and genuinely dedicates and commits themselves to understanding will come to know profound peace and happiness and liberating wisdom. This Invitation to depth and freedom is what draws most of us to meditation practice. We are not drawn by any kind of invitation or sense of this being an an opportunity to sit and suffer and experience sore knees and chaotic minds. You could imagine if in the IMS brochure we advertise this retreat as being, this is a unique opportunity to experience the nightmare of meditation. Come and suffer. Let your knees hurt, your back ache, and your mind rebel. I doubt if we would have many people here. 
We are magnetized by the possibility of happiness and peace, but we easily forget. We easily forget that this is the heart of our practice, the heart of our, in, our, our, our intention, and our sense, and touches our sense of possibility. Most spiritual traditions, and Buddhism is certainly no exception to this, speaks a great deal about liberation and freedom. But it also has a whole lot to say about suffering and its cause, about suffering, uh, sorrow, and its sources. There are libraries written on suffering. We can forget that our practice is to understand the nature of freedom and happiness. When I began to practice, I began in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, which tends to be a very uh, graphic and detailed and, and precise tradition. And at one point in my practice, my teacher decided that we could all do with a dose of teaching on hell. And he didn't kind of say that lightly. We had five months of teaching on hell, on the hell realms, the whole variety of hell realms, and how to get there in endless detail. <laughs> and after five months, I could have written a book about the whole variety of suffering it was possible to experience in this life, never mind the possibility of other lives. And at the end of it, I realized how much had been, how, or how little had been mentioned about happiness and well-being. Now, I do appreciate that there was a certain tactical message in this teaching on hell realms. There was no doubt that after five months of us, most of us really didn't want to go there. Our motivation was actually extraordinarily high. What we see happen, I think, in many spiritual teachings where we begin with the inclination, the magnetism towards happiness, and then experience a teaching which actually speaks about suffering and its cause, it has a parallel also within our own experience, which is no doubt why the teachings often unfold in this way. When we begin in meditation, we are attracted by the third noble truth, of the Buddha. There is liberation. There is freedom. There is the end of sorrow. This is what brings us here. When we sit down with our inner world, we face the reality of the first noble truth. There is unsatisfactoriness. There is difficulty. Sometimes when we sit down, with ourselves, the qualities that have actually, or the possibilities that have actually drawn us to this path seem to be noticeably hiding. In there, where is the happiness I'd heard about? When we look at our inner world, it doesn't always look like the inner world we wanted to find or hoped that we would find. Instead of peace, sometimes we find chaos. Instead of calmness, sometimes we find agitation. Instead of spaciousness, we find we have so many thoughts, 
Sometimes it's so difficult for us to believe how many thoughts it's possible for us to have. Instead of connectedness, sometimes we find moments of great struggle. And faced with this inner reality, we are extraordinarily challenged. Faced with this inner reality, we may be tempted to draw conclusions about ourselves and about the possibilities of ourselves in this practice. I wonder if any of you have been tempted to draw any conclusions about yourselves today. One of the conclusions that may be drawn is that we have to postpone happiness. We have to postpone freedom because we have something else to do first. We have to, first of all, undertake the task of freeing ourselves from self-centeredness and greed and anger and hatred and delusion, the whole variety of feelings that we may have discovered within ourselves today. We may draw the conclusion that it's going to be after we complete this very solemn undertaking that we're going to find happiness. Sometimes you look around you on a retreat and there seems to be an unspoken collective agreement when you look at the faces of others that we're all going to be miserable together now. (laughs) And then we're going to be really happy together later. Some people even want to make a virtue out of suffering. Some people feel that suffering is automatically a sign of going deeper, of really getting to grips with things. I know when I was practicing in Asia, there were times and traditions where suffering was considered to be a great virtue. You know, the more you sweated, the more you groaned, the more you wailed. It was a sign of how deep you were going. Sometimes you were just mixed up. You weren't going deep at all. You you simply lost your way. I've seen times in in Asia where people have been carried out of meditation rooms in the cross-legged position. They've sat there so long their knees, their legs don't unbend anymore, and yet they have this curious smile on their face. You know, like I did it. I really did something extraordinarily heroic here. The Buddha once said that this path is the path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness. And the highest happiness is peace. When the Buddha spoke of it in this way, It's important to understand that he wasn't speaking about everybody else's path except yours. This path is a path of happiness which leads to peace. It is not to say, I don't think, it's not to say that happiness and peace is somehow intrinsic to a particular form or technique. I don't think this is true. But rather, this path as a path of happiness has much to do with our approach, our attitude, our relationship, the way in which we travel 
and undertake the path that we're on. When this practice is undertaken with a deep inner willingness to be present just with what is, without struggle or rejection, without demands or conditions, then this practice is a way of practicing open-heartedness. It's a way of practicing contentment. When this practice is undertaken with a real inner commitment to let go of any notions of opponents, of battling, of judging, then this practice becomes a path of unconditionally welcoming, mindfully present with what is in this moment. Practicing in this way, we do discover a peace and a happiness which is not a future goal, in which we clearly see that suffering is not a stepping stone, a spiritual stepping stone. When we truly see that peace and happiness is not dependent upon rearranging our worlds and our minds so that there's no arising or the difficult or the unpleasant, this understanding brings great contentment and peace. It is important for us to question or to explore the question of how far away from us happiness truly is. Something I'd like to read to you. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, they are always available and accompany you every instant. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom, and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your fire. What is it that allows us to come to this place within ourselves where we feel at peace and at ease in the midst of an inner and an outer world which is unpredictable, which is changing, which is often challenging. What allows us to be present in this moment in ourselves with a balance and serenity that is strong and powerful enough to embrace the world of changing thoughts and feelings and sensations, the world of loss and gain, without ever feeling uprooted from an inner sanctuary of peace and calm. What quality allows us to be present in our world with grace, 
with openness and sensitivity, without ever departing from a quiet and deep inner serenity and balance. It has much to do with understanding, with our willingness to live in harmony with the world of what is rather than the world of what should be. It has much to do with our capacity to embrace without conditions this world of one moment at a time. The quality of contentment and happiness we can discover in this practice is a very simple happiness. It is not so much something that we achieve, not a mind state that we uh, attain, not, not an experience that we gain. The happiness we discover and can discover in this practice is founded upon our willingness to open unconditionally. Happiness is not so much to do with gaining. It has far more to do with letting go with our willingness to let go of judgments, demands, and conditions. Within that willingness to let go, we do discover, begin to discover, how to rest wakefully in a calm and open place within ourselves in the midst of of a sea of change and movement. True contentment doesn't make any distinctions in what is welcomed. True mindfulness makes no distinctions between listening to the song of a bird and the sound of a single breath. True mindfulness makes no distinction between listening to the wind in the leaves and the sound of the truck on the driveway. True mindfulness makes no distinction between our willingness to welcome moments of greed and anger and moments of warmth and connectedness. Within this boundless willingness to welcome, there is happiness. Now this quality of contentment, this quality of happiness is perhaps somewhat alien to the ways and the things that we learn about happiness. I think we often learn in our lives, in our culture, that happiness is something that we have to work for, we have to pay for, we have to accumulate, we have to strive for. And we learn, I think, that happiness has something to do with personal power, the power to avoid the unpleasant and to attain the pleasant the power to get rid of and, and eliminate the difficult, the power to rearrange our world outwardly and inwardly according to our desires and ambitions. This is sometimes called happiness. Sometimes happiness is just called being able to get what we want. Just being able to get what we want. Someone once said to me, When you get what you want, you get happiness. When you don't get what you want, you get experience. (laughs) Much of our lives can be geared simply towards gaining and achieving 
to our will, to our manipulation, to our strategies, to our formulas, trying to achieve a state that we believe exists apart from ourselves. In this understanding of happiness, being happy is really hard work because no one has the power to do all of this. No one has this power. No one in our universe has the power to always get what we want, to make our worlds perfect, to avoid always the difficult or the challenging. Even in those moments when we feel that we've perhaps succeeded in being pretty good at doing all of this, we can be almost guaranteed that the world in the next moment is going to bring us one more thing to rearrange, to get rid of, to avoid, to make into something different. Happiness is very complicated when we pursue it and chase it apart from ourselves and apart from this moment. It's that wonderful Jewish story of the man who goes to his rabbi complaining about the nightmare of his life, telling the rabbi about how he has no peace because his house is filled with a big family and in-laws that, is all, that are always bickering and arguing with each other and fighting and moaning and complaining. And the man says to the rabbi, please, rabbi, help me, help me find a way to be happy. And the rabbi says, don't you have any animals? And the man says, yes, got some chickens, cows, goat, dogs. The rabbi says, well, good, go home, bring them into your house. The man looked a little puzzled, but went home and does. As the rabbi suggests, he comes back to the rabbi the next day and says, rabbi, God help me. I can't bear it. My, my life is worse than ever. My house is like a farmyard. Please help me. The rabbi says, go home. Take the cows out of your house. man goes home, takes the cows out of his house, comes back the next day. Please, rabbi, it's like living in a farmyard, like living in a barn. I can't bear it. What can I do? I so much want to be happy. He says, go home. Take the chickens out of your house. The man does it, comes back the next day. So still, Rabbi, there is so much confusion, so much noise. What can I do? Rabbi says, go home. Take the rest of the animals out of your house. The man goes home and doesn't come back the next day and says to the rabbi, Rabbi, my life is bliss. <laughs> so much happiness. So much peace. Happiness is not somewhere else. It is our way of holding and relating and embracing this moment. Happiness has to do with wisdom, with our capacity to see things as they are. Surely in our lives we will meet change. We will meet loss. We will meet disappointment. We will meet separation. If we're truly able to see things as they are, to live in harmony with the very rhythms of life, none of this becomes a disaster that destroys us. We learn to find a place within ourselves 
a place of a quiet and calm serenity and contentment that is based and rooted within wisdom. Sometimes I wrote the very earnest and earnestness of our search for happiness somewhere else rather blinds us to the nature of happiness and the nature of unhappiness. We tend to equate unhappiness with there being something wrong, and given our training in our world in control and perfection, if something is wrong, we immediately assume that our job is to fix it. You know, that's what we have to do if there's something wrong. If we feel unhappy or unfulfilled, we start looking for what is wrong. Sometimes this is valid. Sometimes there are very clear factors in our lives which are causing suffering or sorrow, and we need to address them. But sometimes it has nothing to do with our circumstances. When we look at when we feel there's something wrong, sometimes we look outwardly at the world we live in. We look, start to try and find out, what is it that's making me unhappy? What's happening to me that isn't right? What's happening to me that shouldn't be happening? Well, today you could probably make a long list. <laughs> What's happening to me that is actually wrong? And we often do this with the very idea of fixing it. We look at people, we look at our families, we look at our, our work. Sometimes we look inwardly with, for what is wrong. There's got to be a problem. If I'm unhappy, there's a problem I've got to fix. Sometimes we blame our thoughts, our feelings, our personal histories, our, our personalities, our past experiences. And again, often with the idea, well, now my job is to fix all of this so that I can arrive at some point in the future of extraordinary happiness. It certainly doesn't mean to imply that everything in the outer world or the inner world is perfect and acceptable. There may be very clear causes of suffering, and each one of us needs to take the, have the courage to say no to anything which causes suffering. But I would much more like to question this belief system that says that our capacity for happiness and well-being is dependent upon the circumstances we're in, the contents of our experience, the objects we're in contact with. We live in a culture which upholds and cherishes the myth of perfection. And part of that myth is that happiness is dependent upon perfection. If we have the right lifestyle, the right relationships, the right achievements, the right prestige, the right possessions, the right experiences, then you will be perfect and we will be happy. This myth of our culture is extraordinarily seductive. And it promotes so much busyness and restlessness. You turn on the TV, you pick up countless magazines, and they're all there selling you a promise of happiness. Sometimes we're seduced, and we don't see how much part of that bargain is actually the promotion of discontent. How much comes with it the feeling of never enough, never having enough, never being good enough, never having the experience that is enough, 
never having as much as another, the endless discontent of never arriving, never arriving at the promised land. Accepting or promoting this myth, pursuing perfection, chasing rainbows, we get further and further away from our capacity for happiness in this moment. Most of us have ceased to believe in this myth in our lives, otherwise we wouldn't be here. We'd be too busy in our lives looking for the right body and the right achievements and the right possessions. We wouldn't have time to go and retreat. But we can continue in more subtle forms this mythology within our own practice. Sometimes we can sit like a judge, the most vigilant critic, always watching and alert for what is wrong and holding forth for ourselves the image of the ideal meditation. Now everybody, most everybody has an image of the ideal meditation, the ideal meditative path. You know, we've got some fairly good ideas about what meditation should look like. And yet, it seems there are all these things in the way. It seems that we've got all these things in the way. And if we can just get these things out of the way, we're going to have this ideal meditation and we're going to be happy. So then, of course, our meditation becomes work. Then our meditation becomes work because we've got all these things to fix all of these things to alter or rearrange or do something with or make them look very different. Have you noticed in that kind of approach how very preoccupied we get with the contents of our experience? You know, the wrong thoughts, the wrong feelings, you know, the wrong kind of images, the wrong kind of meditation. It's all about contents. Sometimes we forget to look. What kind of space are we holding all this in? What is our relationship to all of this? What kind of space can we hold all of this in? Does it have to be a space of harshness, of judgment, of comparison, of being burdened by the problematic nature of our contents? Or is there another way of holding all of this? What is the quality of awareness? The quality of our consciousness that is actually seeing, that is embracing, that is present with all of this, that perhaps is not tinged automatically by any of those flavors of judgment or rejection or comparison. When meditation becomes a task, it seems we have to have a purpose every time we sit. You know, we've got to have a purpose. You know, my, I've got a job to do here. You know, I've got a purpose. I've got to, you know, get more of this or less of that, you know, or, you know, I've got to get a better mind state or less of the greed, more of the compassion. We always then have a purpose. Work is a very familiar part of the vocabulary of Western spirituality. You know, it's, it doesn't really, I don't think, exist so much everywhere, anywhere else, but we're good workers. Sometimes I expect people to come into the meditation room with toolboxes and overalls, you know. <laughs> we're here to work, you know. We're here, we've got some serious thing to do here. 
It is true. It is true that meditation involves an extraordinary amount of commitment, dedication, effort, the willingness to be awake, discipline is part of what we do here. But it is all about coming closer to what is, not about reaching somewhere apart from where we are. All of that commitment and willingness and dedication is order to come, in order to come closer to where we are right now, what we are experiencing right now. This allows us to be. It allows us to be. It sows the seeds. Our commitment sows the seeds of openness, of spaciousness, of clear seeing, so that we can be. You know, when we are always busy working and striving, chasing calmness and happiness, we forget, actually, that true happiness, true contentment, true well-being is closer to us than we could ever believe. I think the notion that actually supports so much of this mythology around work and trying so hard is an exaggerated sense of personal responsibility. Sometimes if, you're, if we're going to be happy, then it's all up to me. I've got to make it happen. I've got to reach for happiness. I've got to pursue happiness. I've got to strive for happiness. I've got to hold on to happiness. And that unless I try really hard and really heroically, then everyone here is going to be happy except for me. I'm the one who's going to sink into some sort of swamp of delusion while everyone else is liberated because of their heroic striving. This belief actually tends to a little bit miss the point. Because meditation is not so much about reaching and striving and hard, uh, trying and struggling. It is about attunement and receptivity. The commitment and the, the effort that we bring here allows us to bring also open into a great sense of appreciation, of being touched, touched by our inner world, touched by our outer world, uh, where our own clarity, our own sense of, of spaciousness and openness is receptive and attuned and alert, not a watchdog, but alert so that we can be touched in a way that moves us so that we can be touched in a way that we deepen in understanding. All that we are asked to do in meditation is to be awake. All that we can do in our practice is to prepare the ground for understanding, for wisdom, for openness. And we prepare the ground for understanding, for wisdom and openness through our commitment and willingness. We are not in charge of how our path will unfold. This is really good news. <laughs> we are not in charge of how this moment will unfold. 
If we feel that we are in charge, we are going to get greatly surprised. And if we feel we are too much in charge, we leave so little room for any real quality of mystery or surprise. And the truth is, we are not in charge. Our retreats rarely go according to plan. Some people have done years of meditation and they may come into a retreat like this and they feel, you know, I've I've done all the hard stuff, you know. I've, I've gone through those years of confusion and conflict and struggle and now I've got to a place of calmness and I'm going to come into this retreat and it's going to be, you know, nine days of hanging out, calm, blissful, peaceful. What do they know? First day, they're besieged by mind storms. Another person comes into a retreat resolving to work on something that's been going on in their lives. Their jealousy or their anger or their greed. You know, they've prepared this special time in the whole year to work on all of this. They sit on the cushion. Does it arise? No. (laughs) They're calm. They're actually contented. And they can feel so peeved about this. I feel I scheduled my anger into this slot in July, you know? I scheduled this time for my greed. Where is it? We are not in charge. This is a welcome revelation because, you know, if you are not in charge of how all this is supposed to unfold, well, you have no successes and you have no failures. You have no gains and you have no losses. You don't fall short of your expectations and you are not disturbed by whatever arises. There just is whatever is present. Out of the focus and the steadiness we bring to our practice, calmness and contentment begins to unfold not according to any particular map or plan, but through our very willingness to see what is. The more we settle, the more we discover some dimension of calmness in this retreat, we also discover how much peace emerges with this. The way to settle, to cultivate calmness is through attentiveness to being able to focus, to being one point, and this is simple. We're simplifying our world. We're learning to be in harmony, to be in touch with what is right now. And yet you notice that we can struggle with attention just as you struggle with happiness. You know, it seems so elusive, attentiveness. Our minds seem to be drawn like a moth to a flame, to thinking, to obsessing, to dwelling, to fantasy. We wonder how many thoughts can be held within one mind. It seems to have this many thoughts. We need a head as big as the universe. Sometimes it is extraordinary. It is miraculous, the unending nature Once I met a person who said to me, you know, I'm tired of trying to let go of thinking. It doesn't work. I'm going to sit here and think until I run out of thoughts. (laughs) Well, 
10 days later, still there, still more thoughts to come. We sometimes feel that after our thoughts are going to stop, then we're going to be attentive and calm. We're going to be peaceful once we have no more thoughts. Like happiness, we might believe that attentiveness relies upon us subduing our minds, and so we tie ourselves in a knot over attention. Attention is really very simple. The Buddha once said that in the mind that is filled with happiness, Attention has found a true foundation. So we've already talked about happiness. The willingness to be with what is. The willingness to be with what is. Then we are attentive. Because we discover that to be attentive is joyful. To cease rejecting, to cease making an enemy out of anything, to let go of our judgments, to let go of our craving for the pleasant and our aversion for the unpleasant. We're happy. We're calm. We are present. It is that simple. We discover how joyful it is to be attentive. We have all experienced this in our lives. We have all experienced moments in our lives when we are deeply attentive and know it to be the richest experience. It might be a moment in nature when you're walking in the woods and you truly just see a, you know, a, a bird feeding its young or a leaf unfolding. So attentive. There's so much happiness within it. May have experienced a moment with someone who is close to you when there's no barriers and no divisions, when you're present in a heartfelt way, so attentive, and it is joyful. Moments of true attention are moments of true attunement. They are moments of intimacy, of oneness. They are filled with joy. It is so strange that part of our minds is always trying to convince us that it's more fun not to be attentive. It is so strange that part of our minds is actually trying to convince us that it's actually more fun to be lost in a fantasy or tied up in some obsession or dwelling or preoccupation. In our hearts, we know this is not so. In our hearts, we know from our own experience, never mind what anyone else tells us, that to be truly attentive, to be truly attuned in communion with the moment, in communion with what is, this is joy. This is happiness. This is true contentment. Unhappiness has not to do with the contents of our experience. Unhappiness has not so much to do necessarily with our circumstances. Unhappiness has to do with separation. This is where we are truly unhappy. When we, are, when we feel separated from what we want, what we expect, what we, what we feel should be, we are unhappy. But more deeply, when we are separated from ourselves, when we are divorced from ourselves and from the moment, we are unhappy. Separation is not intrinsic to any of us. Separation is a habit of the mind, the habit of resistance, a habit of judgment, the habit of rejection. These are the habits we are untangling. 
These are the habits we are untangling through attentiveness. As we cultivate our attentiveness, we come closer to this moment and we explore the nature of oneness. We explore the nature of intimacy and the nature of communion. As that attentiveness deepens, we explore the end of separation, the separation between the breather and the breath. The breath breathes itself. The separation between the thinker and the thought. There is just the thinking. The separation between the sound and the listener. There is just the listening. This is what we are doing in this practice. So that when we breathe, we just breathe. When we walk, we just walk. When we sit, we just sit. Out of that there emerges an extraordinary calmness of being and a very profound and deep happiness. May all beings rest within calmness. May all beings abide in peace. May all beings discover oneness. we could have just two minutes quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.